0: Hi, I'm Patrick Paul, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn from Leaders podcast. The background to this show is that Favor customers are some of the most innovative companies in the world: enterprises wanting to be more agile, software as a service companies scaling fast, and game developers and publishers wanting to master live ops. So we get to know some truly inspiring leaders in product development, marketing, operations, sales, executive management. And what we do here is that we interview them about leadership so we can all learn from them. Let's go.
1: I live with uh, Carl Fritjersson from Crandom. Uh, uh, we're both Swedish but We're going to definitely do this in, uh, in English so everyone can follow what we're talking about.
2: Hope we can make that uh, successful.
1: Uh, cool. And I think we have a very interesting topic today because we're going to talk about investing in very uncertain times. And, and you know, Crandom obviously being one of the most uh, successful, you know, venture capital companies in in, in Europe and the world, um, and you being in, in a leading position there, uh, I think you have a fantastic position to speak from. But uh, we're also going to address a little bit today, you know, what, I mean, some of the thoughts where the VC industry is going, because I think, in know, certain times it's extra interesting to talk about, you know, what does the future look like? But um before we get into that, um, for the ones who doesn't know you, uh, it would be awesome to just hear a little bit like the the story of how you get to to you know where you are right now, and and not only talk about San Francisco, you know, being a Swede, but you know also in in, in this you know point in your career. Sure, happy to. Well, so as you pointed and allured to, I am Swedish
2: originally, but based now in the U.S. Um, my career. Started, uh, well, I mean, my school started where you started. Uh, we, we kind of went to university together, although in slightly different chords. I think you were a year or two ahead of me in Uppsala. Um, but then I started my career in management consulting, not, not really knowing what the hell I wanted to do with my life. And I gave me optionality to figure that out. Uh, and I quite quickly learned that I didn't want to work with large corporates uh, and, and kind of the bureaucracy that that entails. And I've always been an early adopter of things and, and always been, you know, I started programming websites in the, in the 90s and the internet has always been kind of a native platform for me that I loved. So um, uh, I, I stumbled into kind of entrepreneurship after my management consulting career. Um, and I, I ended up founding a business, which was a bootstrapped ad network called Ad Profit in sweden eventually kind of grew it across the nordics a little bit and and i operated that for for a few years um and that's when i kind of got into the world of startups and entrepreneurship i knew nothing about venture really before then and uh, nor did i know much about how to build a successful and big business we were just uh we were just chugging along and doing them as best as we could uh, but luckily we had a profitable business with, with kind of decent decent product marketed quite early on so at least. Uh, i got i got a taste for uh, what what entrepreneurship could really be about and um through my my involvement in in the startup community during those years i learned about venture and i learned about Triandle as one of the few firms that were acting in the stockholm and kind of the nordic ecosystem at that time and and luck struck me in such a way that that they actually offered me a a, a role in their investment team quite early on in my career as as, a, as an associate is what we called it so I, I saved myself out of my company, and I, I got myself uh, involved in the venture world. Um, and uh, as kind of the junior person in Crandon's team, at that point of time, the firm only had one office, which was in Stockholm, and we only kind of tried to cover the Nordics, which was the whole market for us. Uh, and I quite quickly walked the corridors there with imposter syndromes, realizing that uh, there's a completely different path that these entrepreneurs are pursuing than what I had done in my prior life. And uh, that was inspirational for me enough that I wanted to try that. So I actually left Creandum and, and I co-founded my second business, which was a company called Rap, That Creandum was kind enough to see fund. And um, this is the company that eventually brought me to the US. We raced an A round from Greylock and Atomico. And uh, we were kind of off to the races, trying to grow this business across the world. And so it was a really steep learning curve for me, uh, where I test my abilities to the max and, and I grew and learn a lot. And, uh, and, and it also brought me to Silicon Valley, which, you know, felt like a dream come true in a lot of regards, uh, kind of playing the champions leagues. And after that journey, the rap ended up not being like a major success. It looked really promising for a number of years. We, we were the short story of what the company did was we were building marketing solutions on top of payment rails. Um, and we had a pretty unique kind of gift card product early on that got real viral adoption. And based on that traction, we, we were able to raise a decent chunk of money and, and get to a position in the in the ecosystem that looked pretty appealing. But eventually, it ended up not being a major success. Uh, and we started churning out users and all that stuff. So after that journey was done, I was trying to figure out what to do next. And maybe I was going to start another company or maybe I was going to go back into venture. And then... Um, and then, guess the opportunity struck me in such a way that I got a chance to work with an accelerator over in San Francisco. And in being like part-time involved with Creandum from the US, trying to help other portfolio founders of Creandum as they were embarking on that expansion journey. And that then eventually led me down to it, like a full-time uh, engagement and a path with Creandum. And at that point of time, I, I guess I built my own conviction and excitement that I wanted to be a full-time investor. And I had now two startups in my, in my industry that uh, that gave me enough um, battle scores that I thought I could uh, try to help and 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 uh, advice to founders that they when they are pursuing the a similar journey. So that is now I guess seven ish years ago or so that I've been leading up our US office uh, on behalf of Preandom. And what we do at Preandom is that we do early stage investing, uh, predominant in Europe and some in the US, and uh, we focus on early stage, seed and Series A. And we usually get fairly involved as the lead investor roll up our sleeves and really spend time with each company that we back and trying to support them in in any capacity we can as they grow um and uh and we invest generalist across you know a range of categories consumer internet and gaming be one of them and and b2b software and, and infrastructure and climate and fintech and the likes so fairly broad investment mandate but really exciting time to 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 be doing this
1: and, you know, you're, you're using the word exciting and I think a lot of people on the entrepreneurial side are saying this is not exciting times to raise money, you know? So what does challenging times actually mean, you know? Uh, can we can we try to do some kind of definition of that because everyone's talking about that with challenging times right now but, you know, maybe it's not challenging for everyone and what challenging actually means, I mean, let, let's just define that a little bit more um, specifically. Yeah, um,
2: so I think I I think it's fair to say that it is challenging times out there, but I also want to put the challenging time in relation to what normal looks like. And I think the last couple of years in this boom cycle we had, that was an anomaly in terms of how the venture industry and the startup ecosystem operated, where rounds came together incredibly fast, with incredibly competitive terms, with zero governance in terms of involvement from the investor and the company. Um, and, and that inflated a lot of a lot of the expectations around how easy it is to raise money. Um, and uh, that era is over and we're not there anymore. And I think the pendulum has has overcorrected a little bit to the two more cautionary tales. So where we are today in the industry is challenging, mm-hmm. especially at the kind of later stage growth stage, which more or less has died completely. There's very, there are very few firms that are uh, actively deploying uh, later stage growth stage uh, investments into private companies at, at this point of time. Uh, and all these things, they trickle down into also the earlier stages. But I guess the more early you go in this, this kind of startup financing journey, uh, the, the least impacted you are from, from the kind of pullback from the later stage investors. So, um, you know, the stages where Kryana operates at Seed and Series A um, that's where we've seen, we still see quite a lot of activity, at, especially at seed stage, where valuations maybe have come down a little bit. Uh, but there's still a lot, of, a lot of companies that are out raising money. And there are actually a lot of investors that are deploying money into these companies. Um, the big difference from what it used to be in the past is that we generally have much more time to spend with the companies than we did in uh, the last couple of years. So we can get to know the companies a little bit more in depth and, and really flip every stone that we can in terms of understanding the market and triangulating our conviction around that opportunity. Um, and then valuations are, are slightly more healthy than they were in the past, but they're they still you know, pretty okay from all, all parties' uh, perspective, I think. At Series A, um, it is, it is a definitely a slowdown. Um, and there's also has been a change in terms of the expectations of, of what commercial maturity a company needs to have. To raise a successful Series A today. So um last couple of years, a lot of people were mentally thinking, you know, give or take this one million on annualized recurring revenue, and, and you could translate that into transactional revenue or or other things in terms of engagement if you're gaming company free revenue and things like that. But but usually we had that kind of a million the broad definition as the year mark that that you required to raise a series A. and a lot of companies in the boom years, they didn't even have to have to have a million. They could have far below that to raise a significant Series A. Today, I think the number is closer to two and even even beyond that, three even sometimes, uh, while still being able to portray the same kind of growth expectation that a lot of investors are looking for, which is give or take two to 3x, ideally 3x more on a year year basis. And so the expectation have gone up quite a lot in terms of how far a company needs to have have uh, proven themselves in order to successfully raise that Series A. Um, and uh, valuation has also gone down. Uh, it gone down quite a lot. And, and as part of valuation coming down, the round sizes have also shrunk. So there was a lot of Series A round sizes that were in the 20 to 30 million in the last couple of years. And now the standard Series A, they go down to like 8 to 12 is usually kind of the ballpark where a lot of companies are. Some go up to 15, but it's rare to see companies aspiring to raise much more than that. And I think that is, that is to a large extent, is a, is a reflection of, of uh, valuations having come down and, and the Series A round shouldn't be too diluted for all the parties. So the round sizes have gone down as well. But it's also obviously a, a factor of that that it, it is not that much money being, being deployed into the market. So... rounds are effectively smaller uh, because of that and the big uncertainty that we have right now is what happens beyond series a and series b and series c and series d and the likes of that right where there has been such an incredible slowdown in the market from investors pulling back they don't want to deploy any capital they're very exposed overexposed to the category because they deployed too much in the last couple of years they also pay too high valuations and and they need to make sure that those companies grow into that so they're just busy focusing on their existing portfolio rather than finding the other aspect of, of, of the uncertainty at growth stage is also that the, there aren't that many companies that choose to go out to market to raise those rounds right now. So a lot of companies during the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months have done everything they can to prolong their runway, to not go out to market and raise, because they know there's so much uncertainty. They know the investors have, have pulled back. Um, so so there's, there's simply not enough data points to really understand where the world is right now. Um, and there are anomalies. There are these truly, truly breakout success companies that are still growing incredibly well with a massive momentum, and and they are still able to raise big Series B, Series C rounds. And sometimes you, that's what you kind of you read in in tech and the like, and you see those data points, and you're thinking, well, oh, maybe the market is, you know, still great out there. But they are really anomalies. Most companies uh, aren't aren't actively trying to raise those rounds right now. So there aren't too much activity happening at that stage. Which, uh, which makes a lot of us early-stage investors a little nervous because what we typically do is that we do kind of milestone-based financing, right? We look at a company at an early stage and we're trying to figure out what proof points do they need to, to raise the next round of financing. Very rarely do we invest in a company at the early stages with the expectation that they would go profitable with this round, right? So it's, it's about making sure that the company is able to accomplish enough to take them to the next level to make the, raise the next round of capital. And we used to have a decent understanding what was required between a series A and a series B company in order to successfully raise the B and between a C and A and the like, but the, the challenging part is we don't have enough data points in this current environment at growth stage to really know what's required there. So I think, uh, the industry is to some extent operating a little bit in the blind and that also, you know, makes people more uncomfortable pulling them back from the market and 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 kind of pacing themselves a little bit more than than they have in the past. Um so the implications here of course for founders is that it is harder, right? Like the bar has increased, the number of investors have decreased and and the the kind of the the blueprint of what you need to accomplish is still unknown. So this means it's harder to successfully raise money today than it ever been uh, in the last yeah, give or take 10 mm-hmm. to 15 years within within the world of startups um yeah which will have an impact on on the number of companies that are obviously successful in this cohort so a
1: few you know follow up questions to you know some of the things you said um if i start you know with with early stage um so you know you, you mentioned that um the expectation on on arr is 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 higher now than before you know for you know for an a round um you know at the same time those are rounds are smaller uh, but you also said that the expectation on growth is kind of the same, uh, like you have a 2x, 3x. Um, I mean, taking those factors, it seems like you know the pool of companies that will be interesting is simply smaller, because obviously there's going to be fewer companies living up to what you just said. Or, or did I kind of miss something there? Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. I
2: also think what's true is that in the last couple of years, more companies were funded than should have been funded. Um, so... Maybe the pool is more fair right now in terms of which companies are actually able to raise money in this environment than it was in the last uh, last cohort. Um, But the statement holds true that it it is it is difficult to be a company that meets the bar of what a good venture funded business looks like today, and hence there will be absolutely fewer companies that achieve that. But I think I mean there, there may be some firms out there that that are. Starting to kind of recalibrate what the bar looks like at the various stages, but from what I know, speaking to my my industry peers, um, most people do, do not think that's the right approach either, right? To say, oh, we accept lower gro- growth rate because we still just want to invest, right? When we're we're venture is all about the power law dynamics, right? It's about making sure that you get into some of these companies that have truly outsized returns. That's what most venture investors are aspiring to do and they are the anomaly companies they are the rare companies there aren't that many of those companies that exist in the world these are those companies are incredibly difficult to build incredibly difficult to um to scale and but those are the ones we we want to get into ultimately so by keeping the bar as high as you can i mean that's one way of filtering that that you know you're 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 trying to at least keep a consistent quality uh to to uh, optimize for the likelihood that you get into some of these really breakout successes.
1: i want to get back to what you just said but before that i had another follow-up question which is um you know again you know talking about you know the size of ARR at a certain stage um you know for a long time you know there's been this uh, you know kind of saying that you know what you know a certain maturity with a certain ARR is a little bit different between you know the US and Europe i mean basically that historically a company at a certain maturity level would have a higher ARR in the US versus what they would have at the same the same maturity stage in Europe, and and it's been um it's been a, a a trend you know the, the the last few years of a lot of the you know the top firms from the US establishing themselves in Europe. Um, do you do you think I mean what's your view on this I mean it, during this period did did that kind of gap harmonize so this doesn't really matter anymore or is it you know do you do you feel like you, know, you, you still have to make a little bit of a difference between if you're looking at a firm in Europe versus you know, a firm in in, in, the, in the U.S., or um, how do you see the dynamic there?
2: So at Criana, we do not differentiate at all in terms of what the bar that we think a company needs to achieve looks like depending on geography. Um, so we don't, we don't even think along those dimensions. I think the statement has historically held true that a company of a certain maturity um has generally more commercial adoption in the u.s than it has in europe uh, but i think that the primary reason behind that is this uh, the underlying market dynamics and especially if you're in in some kind of b2b software world the largest and the majority of the buyers of the world they still reside in the u.s so you just have an easier access to them in the u.s than you have when if you were to build a company from europe and you also have a tendency to I think, appreciate the art form of sales to a higher degree in the US than in Europe on average, which has meant that that these companies have, uh, if you're trying to compare apples to apples, as 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 difficult as that may be, you would generally see a US company having slightly more mature commercial footprint and two years in versus a two year mature company in in Europe, let's say. and and I would also say that the the lines between Europe and the US are more blurry and fuzzy now than they've ever been. Um, and a lot of this is driven from the sheer fact that um Europe has has uh, for many years now successfully created really large businesses um, without the heavy dependencies on you know the founders moving over to the US and trying to flip the company into a US company. A lot of these big successful companies out of Europe, let's say Spotify and the like, they have commercially succeeded in the U S which I still think is incredibly important for almost every company. If you're trying to become really the global dominant winner, um, but they have done so with, with HQ still residing in Stockholm, Sweden of all places. Right. And, and that I think has really changed the expectation of what the blueprint looked like to build a really successful company. So Europe has proven itself as a breeding ground to build global winners, um, and. and that has then created the interest from a lot of the U.S. investors and the likes to invest in and put more money into Europe because they want to get into these next generation companies. And as more and more of the U.S. investing style has come into Europe, that has also blurred the boundaries between the, the arbitrage that have historically a little bit existed in between U.S. and Europe as well. For example, on price, right? So valuations in general have been a little lower in Europe than in the U.S. But if you look at the hot deal in, in Europe today, a deal that is sought after and is competitive and a lot of venture funds trying to get into it, that deal is not significantly cheaper than than what that deal would look like in the US. So that price arbitrage has also gone down, at least in, in terms of like the 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 deals that have the greatest momentum and interest. Um so I think I think it is more blurry than ever. I think another f- uh, factor that plays into this is also what is a US versus a European business. A lot of companies today they hire with some kind of remote Perspectives, maybe not fully, but at least some component of it, and a lot of companies, um, you know, they they actually operationally are created across both these regions and continents. So, it's is a company like we we created and invested into a business quite recently, which where the founding team are in Miami, it's a Delaware C Corp in terms of its its kind of governing body. Largest offices in Lithuania. Um, and is that a European or a company or a US company? Like I don't know. Does it matter? Probably not, to be honest. So I think there, there is the lines are more blurry than ever, um, which also is this exciting. I think for for both European and US uh, investors and entrepreneurs.
1: Can we talk a little bit about the uh, game investments?
2: Of course, of course.
1: Uh, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, you know, you're the one, you know, leading. Uh, those kind of investments at, at random and, you know, as you know, you know, with Fairway we're not only having, you know, SaaS companies but, but a lot of game companies, so I think I think, you know, many who's listening now are, are from the game industry, uh, so I think it would be interesting to specifically address that especially since there's for sure been a lot of change there. Um, Everyone's talking about how mobile has become much harder because of some changes in, you know, how you can market, how you can basically acquire your, your players Um, I mean, I would love to, to kind of like just hear your, your, your take on you know, you know what's you know challenging times with game investments. What does that mean for you right now?
2: Right. Well, first of all, this is how I build credibility with your audience that I have links <laughs> tattooed on my inner arm. So obviously, I care about the gaming space, and it, it's, it's you know the largest uh, entertainment category. So it's also an important one for value creation as an investor to, to think of. And Creandum uh, had the good fortune to be a, a um, very prominent and active Nordic player when the mobile ecosystem was coming into its fruition. And obviously, the Nordics played a really important role there with uh, some of the biggest companies being created out of probably Finland and Sweden with King and, and Super and likes. So um, historically, we were very active, uh, investing quite broadly into um, game studios and content, um, and specifically as the free-to-play kind of trend started to evolve. And our approach back then, this is now in let's call it 2013, 14, 15. Those those years, our approach back then was to um, go early and have a a portfolio approach because it's, it's hard pre soft launch data and all these things, right? To fully fully comprehend and understand the, the capabilities of the of the game that is being developed. But we were betting on teams that had you know solid experience and and uh, and a unique thesis of what they were trying to create that felt compelling and we we we, we built a portfolio back then of, of uh with quite a large number of companies that, and we then the approach that hopefully some of these will generate enough returns at the tail and that this becomes a, a, a solid strategy and I, I think it was the right strategy at the time um and and, uh, and we had some some good success there with uh, small giant games amongst others that that's a good run for us um but then, what has happened since then? Uh, to your point here, is, is there's been heavy consolidation in the mobile space. Uh, the giants have become even more powerful and capable, and uh, at the same time, user acquisition has become more challenging for the obvious reasons. With with iOS 14 and the changes that came there, and and how now the death of cookies is happening, and all all the the, the things that is just uh, a headwind against that industry. So. We have really dialed back quite a lot when it comes to the the, the typical type of gaming companies that Crianon was involved with in the past, which was this mobile studios, a lot of them free to play. Um, and we actually think it's a pretty challenging time right now uh, to invest in content businesses like that um, because it is very unpredictable how you can scale user acquisition in a cost-effective way uh, without just having to, Burn through boatloads of cash, and and in the market where we are right now, with with basically the cost of capital having gone up, and even the access to capital being uncertain, all these things plays into to 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 factor here that makes us even more concerned. And it's hard because the big giants within this space they're already very capable, and they're not lazy either. Right, they're churning through new titles, new content on a constant basis, and quickly iterating when they see new trends of, uh, emerge. And so we've dialed back quite significantly when it comes to that kind of investment strategy right now. Um, and uh, uh, we are still excited about what is to come. Um, and for a while there, we were thinking cloud gaming being kind of maybe the next platform ship that would generate some some kind of new um, new macro shifts in the market that would that would lead us to find the next cohort of of content businesses that were tackling this from another perspective than the and where the giants are operating right now. But I think that has also not really lived up to its promise uh with Stadia and the lights shutting down. So um and, and VR, you know, we invested in in Invest in Resolution Games a while back ago, which was one of the leading VR studios. And VR hasn't either really kind of lived up to its promises. So I think we're a little bit, when it comes to content right now, we're a little bit waiting to see what the what the next wave will look like. And, uh, and we're not fully there yet to know that we have a strong hypothesis of what, what it is that we're looking for. We're kind of waiting for the market to show us that a little bit. Um, and I think it's also fair to say as an investor, we also don't believe when it comes to gaming, especially in content, that it is a first mover advantage to a lot of regards. It's, it's actually an, almost a disadvantage when you think about like new platforms, right? You you, you want to have seen enough platform adoption and then that's kind of when Supercell came into mobile, right? And they so they were not the first, but they were they were kind of the second cohort and that's where they could really capitalize well. So it's not something we kind of rush into either, um, but we'd love to find it. We'd love to, we, we're really excited when we, we see it. Uh, but what we're spending more time on then in parallel to this right now is, is looking at, uh, at the various kind of infrastructure and and, and software components that feeds the the gaming market. So more on the B two B side and trying to trying to see if there are um, there are any compelling uh, products out there that are tackling large enough markets where that could make sense. And what's interesting with gaming is that um, a lot of those. A lot of gaming companies, you know, for example, within UA, right? They're very sophisticated. They are like truly the best companies in the world at user acquisition. So the type of tools that are being developed for the gaming industry, for let's say that 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 specific function, they tend to be best in class. That could be utilized by a lot of other categories of companies down the line as well. So it's an interesting thing to look at, like the 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 industry tools that are being used in gaming, and and trying to have a hypothesis of how those can expand beyond gaming as well. So those are sort the of things that that we're trying to spend time on right now and, and and can get more excited about.
1: I guess it's a little bit like the, you know the old saying, you know, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. So it's like if you if you make it in games, you know, that you never go to shells to make it everywhere else. Exactly. Exactly. Uh final question, let's just talk a little bit about uh the future outlook. So, you know, um you know, you're uh, you know, you're uh, you're still young in the industry. You have many more years to to give, you know, when it comes to doing great investments. Um, you know, if you if you think, you know, some years into the future and how you think you will look at how things have changed then. I mean, what do you think are the, the kind of the big trends in, in how like how VC is itself is changing? Yeah, well I mean think first and foremost, I think right now is a
2: is an amazing time to start a company and to invest in, in early stage technology companies. Um I think there's a lot of uh of tourism that has kind of ceased to exist and we're down to the people that are actually passionate and care about this and they're the ones that that dare to spend time here and take the risks that are involved so we're coming down to like the more fundamentals that are being prioritized when it comes to company building and, and early stage investing and then of course valuation has gone down and that that helped to drive some some returns from the purely investor perspective but i and i also think that the kind of the scarcity in this the the, the forced scrappiness that this current environment is 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 forcing you into that creates a discipline and, and these boundaries are also source of innovation. So they, they're like, this is this is the type of environment where I think companies can truly make leaps and, and really come up with new ideas of how to create things. And so right now, I believe it's, it's an amazing time to be alive and to be investing. And I'm, I'm really excited for it. And then it, like kind of technology-wise right now, we're also facing... Something that is of of interest. Let's see how big it becomes with generative AI and large language models. It is clear that it is that it it is something that uh, will have impact on our industry, how we interact with software and how how software is built. Um, Question is how big of an impact it will have. But I think as as someone who is trying to try to learn from the world, where the world is going. There is a lot of momentum and energy around this macro trend that it is it is credibly uh, to, to believe that it could represent a next computational wave. And if it does, then this could be as big as mobile, maybe as big as cloud, maybe as big as the internet. It could be one of those truly leaps that we are experiencing right now. And if that is the case, then there's like endless opportunities, right? Because what that really means um, is that every software category and every every technology experience can be redefined, right? So everything is up to grab. You can go through the entire stack, right? Of infrastructure, middleware, end user experience, consumer B2B, and, and just put that lens on and see how that could be redefined. And, and the people that are able to do that in a successful way, they will generate immense value, I believe. So, um, so I think it's an, it's a really, really exciting time. And, uh, yeah, and and I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. I'm very much a tech optimist and there's some dangers with this trend as well and all that stuff. Uh, And I also think one big difference from, from prior kind of cohorts of, of innovations is that you also have big, big technology companies who are still innovative, right? They're not lazy either, like the fangs and the likes. Right, they're innovating heavily. They're part of this computational wave of creating the next generation LLMs and the likes. And they're not—they're not sitting idle, right? So uh, I think technology came almost bottoms up in the last twenty years, and a lot of the big companies at that point in time they were disrupted because they couldn't move as fast. Now you also have the big ones moving fast and dare to kind of bet a lot of their a lot of their future on these uh, these uh, trends. So. The opportunities won't necessarily only land on entrepreneurs and founders who are starting a small business that eventually will grow big. It'll be much more of a blend between the the, the established technology companies. But of course, endless opportunities and, and great time to be alive.
1: I think this was really great. You know, we started with talking about challenging times and, and we end on a very, you know, positive note for the future. I I think that, that was that was a perfect closure. <laughs>
2: I like that. I like that. There's no other way to, to look at the world than, than to try to be optimistic here, I think. And uh, the, other, the other path is uh, it, it just leads you down a very bad mental state. So, uh, so I, hope, I hope this was a little bit source of inspiration for anybody that's thinking through that.
1: Well, Carl, you know, thank, you. thank you so much for, uh, for joining the show. Uh, it was truly great. And um, thank you for everyone listening. Um, I hope you liked this. And see you in the next one.
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, you know what to do. Share it in your social media so more people can take part and learn. And one more thing. Check out Fevro Academy on favor.com for many more learnings. Thanks for tuning in.